0: Hi, everybody. It's Greg here. Before we listen to this episode, an episode that was produced by Emily Stanford, who is a Wildlands Collective member, I just wanted to take a minute to tell you how personal this story feels to me and how I think we all need to be kind of finding ways to make connections to the stories that we're hearing here on this show. This episode is about... Communities in the mountains that are adapting to climate change, and it feels really personal right now because of the number and the intensity of the fires, the wildfires that Colorado is battling right now. And we're not the only ones. Um, California, what's going on there is awful. And it's incredible to see how powerful these things are. And it's really easy to remove ourselves from the impact of those disasters. One here in Colorado in particular is the Cameron Peak Fire, which is about 40 miles west of our home. And we're safe. We're nowhere near anything dangerous. But this fire began only on August 13th and has grown to over 102 Thousand acres, which is about almost 160 square miles, if you can imagine how large an area that size is. It is the largest in Larimer County history, the previous being 87,000 acres set in 2012. And that's just no record that needs to be beat. You can't say that this is just climate change. You can't say that this is just global warming that's making this happen. But there should be no doubt that the impact that we're having on our planet is exacerbating these kinds of conditions and these issues. And we need to find ways to make that personal to us, to find the inspiration and the power and the courage to continue and to be more, that's the thing, I don't know, aggressive. Uh, confrontational, uh, a powerhouse for, for the planet and for the generations to come. For the last week, it has been raining ash almost on a daily basis, blood-red skies that look like thunderstorms coming in, but they're actually just these giant billowing smoke clouds. And it feels like something from a movie. It feels like scorched earth. And that's not to just be dramatic about it and then next episode we don't talk about it ever again. I don't think I'll ever forget how things have been this last week. And it's, as a born and raised person of Colorado, I've never seen anything like this before. And for the 97 to 98% of scientists that will say that climate change is indeed a very real human-induced phenomenon, there's just no room for error in how we proceed And to make things even weirder, what was 90 plus days for weeks on end, two days ago, I was in shorts and a t-shirt and yesterday it froze here in Colorado and this morning it's snowing. A massive, massive temperature drop in a very short period of time. Something that is completely unusual for Colorado and people say, yeah, Colorado, the weather changes very fast. Yes, it does, but not like this. This is different. And that precipitation is a great gift to Colorado and to our firefighters who are really risking a lot to be out there. But they'll be the first to say that it's not enough. So Emily, thank you very much for bringing this story to our listeners at this time. Thank you for bringing it to me. Very quickly, before we jump into the episode, we have a voicemail that Emily and I did not get a chance to record around because of our production schedule. We do a lot of that audio ahead of time, Uh, but we've been asking for these, these phone calls and these emails, and it's extremely exciting to get them in and to hear from you directly. This one comes from Alexis in Oregon.
1: Hi, uh this is Alexis. I'm calling from Oregon and I'm calling about the eyes on conservation rebranding. Um, I'm I'm very happy to hear that you want to incorporate social justice and race into the lens at which um, that you look at conservation through. Um, I think that one of the most important things that conservation can do is show up for other movements and learn the issues of other movements. Um, it's one thing to understand how their issues might specifically intersect, but then it's also another issue to just learn what they care about, what another movement care, cares about, whether it's LGBTQ or the movement for Black Lives. Um, and third thing is that there's sometimes an emphasis on language, and I think that that is really not as important. So you can rename your podcast, but Will You Lose Listeners? And, like, what is the value of that? Like, are you saying that the word conservation is a problem? Um, I mean, you know, that's kind of why I think it's not all about just recreating yourself, but also, like, learning to see, learning the issues for other groups and then learning how conservation blends with those over time, um, rather than trying to start out with the answers and start out with a new brand. Um, Those are my two cents. And thanks for asking. Look forward to seeing what you do.
0: Alexis, thank you so much for that very thoughtful phone call. Since I'm sitting here recording in a closet all alone, I can only speak for myself at this moment. But I think there's a ton of truth in what you're saying. And It would be one thing if we were just trying to change the podcast name and hoping that that was going to be enough, but there's a very, very sincere interest on my part and others in the leadership team of Wildlands to make sure that it's about putting on a new set of glasses to be able to look at all of these issues around conservation through the perspective of exploring how it affects different communities and different people from different backgrounds differently so i i really hope that we're not just boiling it down to language and i really do believe that this name change is going to be for the greater good the greater good um but of course ultimately we are beholden to our listeners in the most thoughtful way possible we want to know how these things are resonating with you. We want to know if we're hitting the mark or if we're just completely missing it. And comments like yours, Alexis, really help paint that picture in a way that at least makes sure that we're setting the stage properly and we're moving in the right direction with the right heart. And if you don't see us doing that, Alexis, or any of our other listeners out there, that's what we need to know. You can always leave us a voicemail at 208 917 3786. And you can also write an email or send a voice note to info at wildlandsinc.org. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast. I'm Gregory Haddock. And today I'm joined with a first time producer for the soon to be renamed Eyes on Conservation podcast, Wildlands Collective member, Emily Stanford. Emily, how you doing?
2: I'm good. Thanks, Greg.
0: Now, if I'm not mistaken, you are joining us. Well, I am I am not mistaken. I, I know for a fact that you are joining us from sunny old England.
2: <laughs> a bit rainy today, but yes, I am. Originally from Texas, but I've just moved here with my fiance. Which
0: is fantastic. And congratulations again on that. Today, you're producing this episode, you've got two guests for us, and you already have a particular relationship with these people. Having been in the same program, I'll let you explain a little bit more about that here in a minute. But before we go any further, we have an email that we'd like to share with the audience. So, um, Emily, if you will.
2: This is an email that we got from Peyton, and she writes, Hi, I really love listening to your show. I think y'all do a great job of bringing people doing some really interesting work. In one of your last posts, you asked for feedback about the show, and I think my feedback would be that I really like to see more ecology in the future. I'm currently studying environmental science, and I'm going to try to get my master's degree in ecological restoration, so I'm a little biased towards plants more than anything. I like hearing about the people saving all the creatures, but there's also a lot of conservation work being done with restoring habitats and with plants that I think would be really interesting to talk about, especially if you get people on to talk about the program with invasive species right now. All in all, I really do appreciate your work and I love the content you're putting together, but it would be nice to hear about the plant side of conservation from time to time. Thank you for your time. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I think a lot of botanists do (laughs) often get left out (laughs) in conservation talk.
0: Yeah, it's it's easy to do sometimes and, and to just get kind of tunnel vision about like the topics that you cover, and I think that's one of the reasons that we're really excited about the new format for Eyes on Conservation, that we're having so many different producers because that means we're not sticking to just the same topics. Like if I was doing this all the time, it would get really boring really fast. We do have a couple episodes. We've got Wildfires to Wildflowers. We have um, an episode called Tree Yourself, which is about the efforts to plant a trillion trees worldwide. And then another one on urban tree planting. But that is clearly not enough. And there is so much more that we could do. So, Peyton, I think your email is spot on. And we're going to do what we can to try to follow through with that. Thank you so much again, Peyton. We really appreciate it. If you would like to send us an email or a voice note, you can always do that to info at wildlandsinc.org. You can also leave us a voicemail directly at 208-917-3786. So, Emily, you had two interviews for this episode. Tell us a little bit about the guests and tell us about your relationship with them.
2: So the first speaker I spoke with was Dr. Kelly Archie, and she is the senior science advisor at the Institute for Ecological Civilization. And she spent the past 12 years as an academic in New Zealand and in the States studying climate change adoption. I first read her research paper on climate change adaptation in the southern Rocky Mountain region of North America. The paper discusses barriers to planning and implementation around climate change. So I thought it was really interesting. Our second speaker is Tina Chin. And Tina and I met at the Watson Fellowship Conference in 2019, and it was there that I learned about her really interesting explorative research topic, where she spent a year traveling alone to live in various mountainous communities to learn about how they're adapting to climate change. So she's going to join us and tell us about her personal experience from this year.
0: Awesome. And for those who are not in the know, what is the Watson Fellowship Program?
2: Yeah, the the Wassman Fellowship is a really incredible program. It basically provides a grant that funds recent graduates to explore a topic of deep personal interest to them at a global scale. So basically design a project and say you're going to go to X amount of countries to study it in. And it can be on any topic, like from human rights to environmental issues, wildlife conservation, to music and fashion and healthcare technology. The only rules for the Watson Fellowship are... You do it completely alone and you don't return to the U.S. for an entire year, pushing you to grow outside of your comfort zone and like building your confidence.
0: That's awesome. I love it. I'm pumped to hear about how this does affect mountain communities because it doesn't always feel like there's a direct connection for those who are not so far from the mountains and those who live right in them. So putting that whole picture together is really, really important to having a serious conversation about climate change. So uh, let's not waste any time jumping into it. And let's hear what Kelly had to say.
2: Welcome to the show, Dr. Archie. We're really excited to have you. Thanks. It's great to be here. I'm
3: glad I could talk to you today.
2: Fantastic. So can you first go ahead and and give a little introduction about yourself and maybe some projects that you've worked on and some research that you've done?
3: Sure. So I'm an environmental scientist. I've done research, as you mentioned, in mountainous regions all over the globe. So in the Rockies and federal public lands and in mountain communities like we're going to talk about today, but also in the Indian Himalaya, working with some disadvantaged groups there. And in Vanuatu, I've studied nature-based solutions, which I think we'll talk about probably a little bit later later in our talk today. And in New Zealand, I've also worked with communities just general across the country too. So talking about barriers that are hampering adaptation, ways to make those processes more feasible from a variety of standpoints, both socially and politically. And right now I also work for a nonprofit called EcoCiv, the Institute for Ecological Civilization. And we do work trying to promote more sustainable societies globally in general and using events and right now writing a book and all kinds of things. So I have a pretty wide range of experience around these topics, both in climate change, but environmental issues in general.
2: Excellent. And how did you first get interested in climate change adaptation and specifically in mountainous communities?
3: So I grew up in Colorado and I've always had a passion for the outdoors, especially the mountains. I originally became interested in studying adaptation in mountain communities while working on my PhD at CU Boulder, University of Colorado at Boulder. So prior to my grad school experience, my husband and I worked for ski school, we were ski bums, and lived in a number of Colorado ski towns. And so when we moved back down to the Front Range, which is what we in Colorado call the eastern slope of the mountains, we spent most of our weekends still commuting back up to the high country, where we like to recreate. So when I began my scholarly work on climate change, I was looking at adaptation in federal public lands in the Western United States, because as you're probably aware, the Western United States is vastly owned by the federal government. There are huge tracts of public lands. So it's really important what happens in those areas. And it occurred to me that the mountain towns that I love so much were intricately linked to those surrounding public lands, because that's where all the skiing and the hiking and the biking took place. And so all the activities that everybody wanted to do when they were going to the mountains were actually taking place on public lands, but they were living in or staying in the mountain communities. And so understanding adaptation in that whole region required looking at both the public lands and the towns. Fantastic.
2: How did you first get interested in studying climate change? Where did your passion for the environment come from?
3: I, I think the passion in general for the environment, like I said, comes largely just out of a childhood that was spent mostly outside and my passion just for the natural world in general and climate change is as we've heard it over and over and over again at least by people that are in the know but it is the defining problem of our time so pretty much everything else at this point that we talk about sits within the bounds of what happens with climate change so we can't talk about social problems without talking about how they are influenced by the environment in general and specifically how they're going to be made worse by climate change if we don't do something about it so I, I did not actually go to school thinking I would study climate change. I wanted to study ecosystem services and specifically in the rainforest. <laughs> but, but it turns out that the, when there is a really big problem and it needs a lot of science in order to figure out both how to solve it and how to address it and how to talk to people about it, then that's where you're drawn into if you really want to make a difference.
2: So I think when people often think about climate change and the communities that have to adapt to climate change... A lot of mine automatically go to low altitude regions and coastal areas because mm-hmm. obviously you know sea level rise. But what about the other extreme? Can you explain why mountainous communities are more susceptible to climate change than communities in other geographic
3: areas? Absolutely. So high altitude ecosystems are especially sensitive to climate change um, because warmer surface temperatures restrict already confined species to even smaller habitable zones. And the topography of the mountains often makes migration impossible, so the obvious animal that we can talk about right now are pikas, they're these little furry creatures that live above tree line. and they have so much body fat and thick fur to keep them warm in the winter, but they can't tolerate temperatures above about 70 degrees. And if that happens, they literally just overheat and that's it for them. So they can't just walk down the mountain and find a new mountain because it gets hotter in the valleys, of course. So there's this confining process of the mountains that makes them really interesting from a biological perspective. And other consequences like changes in annual snowpack and snowmelt timing that are associated with climate change are of concern to both the native plants and animals, but also to local human systems. So on the more human side, other geographic factors make mountain communities worldwide, not just in the Rockies, but especially vulnerable to the direct effects of changes in climate, such as flooding and increased risks of fire and loss of biodiversity, but probably of even greater concern to the people, especially in the Rockies, not necessarily in all the other mountain communities around the world, but certainly here in Colorado and other parts of the Rockies, Many mountain communities rely on recreation and tourism, which increases their vulnerability to the secondary economic effects of climate change, things like decreases in tourism from lack of snow for winter recreation, and changes in management practices on those public lands that I just mentioned.
2: What are some other risks that climate change poses to specifically the southern rocky communities that you surveyed?
3: Yeah, so the impacts from climate change vary, of course, for each community depending on a variety of factors, but there are some obvious patterns that we've already seen So many mountain communities are built, for example, on the banks of a river or a creek. It just makes sense if you're going to build a a town in the mountains that you'd build it down in the valley where the water is. It often runs right through the middle of town and there's restaurants next to it and shops and paths and things like that. And changes in temperature and the timing of precipitation, which are caused by climate change, have been increasing the risks of flooding in these areas. So, for example, one of the weather patterns we're expecting to see more often with climate change is late wet snow in the southern Rockies region, at least, late wet snow coupled with warmer spring temperatures. So, basically, what we're saying here is we're changing from a dry winter snow with warmer temperatures to a wetter spring snow, and then spring is coming on earlier and hotter. And obviously, this won't happen every year, but that is one of the patterns that we expect to see more of. And that combination can dramatically increase runoff rates. So you have this high, you know, this wet snow sitting up in the mountains, and then all of a sudden it gets really warm, and it runs off really fast, and it can cause major problems for communities built near the rivers, as you can imagine. Also, for most communities in the Rockies, drought is a major concern that is exacerbated by climate change. Droughts in the summer and fall dramatically increase this ever-present risk of wildfire, which we, you know, we've seen the effects of in recent years. And most, if not all, the communities that I've studied here in Colorado and elsewhere have economies that are highly dependent, like I've already mentioned, on money from tourism and the ski towns particularly. So if they have a dry winter with very little snow, skier visits drop and obviously so does local revenue. And I just mentioned a minute ago, there's also this flip side, though, of hotter temperatures in other parts of the state or the country driving tourists to high altitudes in the summer, but then strapping the resources of these small towns.
2: Yeah. I I hate to think about the added economic stress of climate change in addition to our current situation with COVID-19 going on.
3: It is. And that's why I said at the beginning that it's these problems are linked. Like you can't divorce yourself from the issues of climate change right now. (laughs) So you have COVID is just yet another COVID was not caused, of course, by climate change. But the problems from climate change will only exacerbate the issues that we have on every front.
2: So going to the more hopeful side
3: of things, what are some strategies that you found that mountainous communities use to adapt to these changing conditions? So from a social and an economic standpoint, diversification has been the most effective adaptation strategy. If these communities are going to continue, the ones I've been talking about here in Colorado specifically, to be reliant on tourism, then ensuring that there are opportunities for recreation and entertainment, regardless of, say, snow, for example, is the best way that they can hedge their bets. And you see this happening and has been for years by most of the bigger ski companies, certainly, where they not only you know own the ski resorts and that kind of infrastructure, but they've diversified into real estate and retail restaurants and things like that, too. Obviously, that helps their bottom line, but it also helps the community to be more resilient in the face of changes in you know weather patterns. There are location-specific management practices for ski areas specifically that can help to ensure continued access even in years with little snow. So there's things like off-season grooming of ski runs to make them smoother so less snow is needed and cutting new north-facing slopes to get less sun, making more artificial snow, etc. But in some areas, these practices probably even altogether won't be enough to continue a viable ski season every year. So those are kind of specific to the ski towns and the Colorado towns, but I'm a big proponent in general of nature-based adaptation solutions. And I've done work in Vanuatu, which is a small island nation in the South Pacific, on just this topic. And nature-based solutions to adaptation and climate change use natural ecosystems to solve problems. So good examples are things like restoring sand dunes to combat coastal storm surge instead of building a seawall. And the sand dunes have many co-benefits associated with them. So they provide habitat for you know local animals and plants, they provide opportunities for recreation, they're beautiful, especially compared to a concrete wall. So I'm a big fan of using these types of solutions instead of you know just say concrete Army Corps of Engineer type solutions. And many communities around the world and in the Rockies as well have begun to reimagine areas around those riverfronts specifically using nature-based solutions to reduce the risks from flooding. So instead of building you know, higher walls around the buildings there or just lining the whole riverbed with concrete They're restoring the river, providing natural habitat for the local species, especially the trout, and allowing for sustainable use along it, things like bike paths, but also protecting themselves from flooding because those natural ecosystems are more capable of maintaining their integrity than the human ones when we just kind of go in and, and put up big walls. It's good to hear that there's some hopeful ways that people can use to adapt to these changes.
2: But I imagine all these fixes aren't necessarily cheap or easy. So do you know if, you know, in the communities that you've worked in, is it on the policymakers agenda to try to implement these changes?
3: Well, therein lies the rub, right? Especially right now during COVID. (laughs) So the survey work that I've done, not just in the mountain communities here, but around the world, have always shown Interestingly, maybe not so interestingly, depending on how you consider it, because it seems almost kind of obvious, but some of the same results, which is that a lack of resources and a lack of information or a perceived lack of information and a lack of political will are often the most common barriers to both the planning and the implementation. And even though some of the work I've done, especially the work here in the Rockies was a few years ago, the barriers are still completely irrelevant now, especially since we've seen kind of that robust response from different places around the world, all kind of the same, then we can be pretty sure that those are the real problems associated with trying to do this kind of work. And it makes sense because we need leaders who respond to current problems. We don't want leaders that ignore what's happening around them and the issues that their communities are having right then. To respond to things you know that are uncertain, which we do have you know some uncertainty in what we expect to see from climate change, you can imagine a local leader right now deciding to say, you know what, we're not going to use any money to respond to COVID. We're going to use it to rebuild this bridge because we think there might be higher runoff levels in this stream in the future, and that would be completely not okay. That wouldn't fly. (laughs) They'd say, nope, we have a major problem going on right now. So. We definitely need leaders and decision makers that, you know, are going to respond to our current problems, even not just COVID things, but things like education. You know, if we have a lack of funding for schools and children are suffering or other public health issues, but we also need forward thinking leaders and that lack of resources. The fact that there's always going to be unlimited amount of money and time to spend on projects is always going to push down what would appears to be a less urgent problem to the bottom of the list.
2: Yeah, that's the issue with climate change, isn't it? Because there's never, it's not like a hard deadline of when it hits. It's a gradual growing problem that's global. So it makes managing it and planning
3: for it quite difficult. It does, though I would say that's changing because we are actually seeing problems. <laughs> so we we have gotten to the point where we are actually going, oh, maybe this is actually a problem right now. So in some respects, or in all respects, that's quite scary. But in some, at least that might, like you said, speed things along because we can see them as, you know, bigger, more, you know, higher priorities. Mm -hmm, Definitely.
2: (laughs) And I think another problem to people responding to climate change is actually belief in climate change. So I actually grew up in a small town in Texas, and there there's acceptance that climate change is a real thing was not a belief that people had unanimously. And so how about in the communities that you surveyed in the Rocky Mountains, to what extent do people's beliefs about climate change affect their ability to adapt
3: to it? Well, it affects it a lot. And I will, because of your story, you just said about growing up in a small town in Texas, I'll tell you that I grew up actually in Colorado Springs, which is a a very conservative city, as you might be aware. And I used to joke that when I would come home from work for, Uh, by Thanksgiving or something, that I would tell my family and friends that I was a um, professor of unicorns because that was more believable to them than being a professor of climate change. (laughs) So, um, It is a very big deal globally about whether or not people have the understanding and the attitudes towards climate change that are a negative priority and that is real. And in all of my work around the globe, i found that those beliefs and attitudes about climate change very much impact individual willingness and ability to adapt. That seems really obvious, but it can be a major problem in situations like we saw back in the United States in 2009. At that time, the newly elected president, Barack Obama, had signed an executive order requiring all federal agencies to manage the impacts of climate change. So this was basically a call to adaptation for all federal agencies. And some of the federal public lands managers we spoke to at that time had quite low levels of belief and and attitudes about climate change. And so even though they were called from the top to start doing this adaptation, to say, you know, come on, we need to begin this process. They were much less likely to put those limited resources toward adaptation, even though they were told to um, if they didn't have a high level of belief in climate change. So it is tricky to make decisions on high that require these things if you still have large groups of people you know that are working or just living in communities that don't have the beliefs that make it necessary to to take action this is one of the reasons why i think it's so important to vote for candidates which this year is obviously the big year in the united states for voting um who you know have a high level of concern for environmental problems and a good understanding of climate change because it's not good enough if you will to just put someone in office that says, yeah, I believe in it, right, it's important, but all these other things are more important because then, as we already talked about, those limited resources will just never be put in that direction if it always looks like it's not a big priority. And we need global action immediately if we're going to prevent major increases in temperature that our systems just can't tolerate.
2: My last question for you is what is one hope or message that you wish the
3: audience could take home with them? So one of the lessons that I'd say I took away, not specifically from this study, but from all the work that I've done in this area combined, is that it can seem simple to those of us working at a distance. We can, we can be scientists and we can stand back and say, well, this is exactly what needs to be done. Why are those people not doing it? But when you talk to the people making decisions on the ground, solutions always become more complicated. And so good adaptation planning has to be place-based. It needs to be tethered to good mitigation action because it's not good enough to just adapt. We want to actually stop further climate change. And it needs to be done by local actors if it's going to be successful. We need the local people to buy in to the the process and to understand the priorities. And we need them to actually take part in that process in order for it to be successful so that when we walk away, it doesn't just fall apart. And as for hope, I guess the way that I would respond to that is probably not in a traditional way, but I would say that we just don't have the luxury of not having hope. The opposite of hope is despair. I think that's a, a dictionary one. And I don't think that we are productive when we are in despair. When people are in despair, we consider them as depressed and um, curling up and retracting and retreating from life. And I don't think this is the time for that. So even when things don't seem <laughs> like they're very hopeful and even when things seem really you know, going the wrong direction, it is our responsibility to find some hope because we don't have the luxury for despair. So we need to figure out ways to maintain our strength and our, our attitudes in order to just not fall into this trap of saying, of throwing our hands up in the air and saying it won't work because our children and future generations depend on us realizing that that's not an option.
2: Mm, absolutely. No, well, Dr. Kelly Artu, thank you so much for your time. This has been a really great conversation. Thanks, it was great talking with you today. Dr. Archie talked about how policymakers have an obligation to respond to things that are afflicting people now. My question for you, Greg, is uh, when will it get prioritized if our political system isn't necessarily designed to reward for that long-term problem solving?
0: I'm really glad that Dr. Archie touches on this because voting in the interest of especially something as pressing and as concerning and as consequential as climate change, that should almost be the forefront of of any ticket. And it should be the forefront of any voter, I think. It's just that important. As far as like when that kind of stuff is going to get fixed or when it's going to get prioritized. It's hard to imagine until lobbying and money is continuing to have that kind of influence in politics and admittedly in both major parties, it's hard to imagine it having that kind of priority that it deserves and needs. And as we think about those big kind of policy decisions and consequences, it's easy to kind of miss out on more of the personal stories and the personal anecdotes and the individual lives of the people that are affected by either poor decision making by leaders or a complete lack of decision making by leaders. In this second interview, Tina really had a chance to walk among a lot of the people who are affected directly by the inaction of our policymakers.
2: Hi, Tina. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today.
4: Yeah, I'm so grateful for this invitation. I'm super looking forward to talking to you more about this.
2: Yeah, me too. So Tina has done a really interesting project where she received a Watson Fellowship to explore firsthand how mountainous indigenous communities adapt to climate change. So Tina, can you tell me first, like, what is the Watson Fellowship and what was your project about?
4: Yeah, I'd be happy to. So essentially, the Watson Fellowship is part of this foundation, which is a trust that was formed in honor of the IBM chairman. Um, The program itself selects approximately 30-ish students in America annually to embark on a postgraduate project of their choice. And I believe the acceptance rate hovers around 3%. So I feel extremely, extremely grateful for the opportunity that I was given. And I think it's important to talk about like what others have done as well. And so all the projects that are out there or that have been done are so impressive. We have fellows who have explored trauma in refugee communities. We have Emily here who conceived and executed her project on conservation of bats. And then I had a friend who explored the complex relationship between Chinese populations living in Africa and African populations living in China. And so for my project, I was essentially investigating how indigenous mountain communities adapt to climate change and whether such adaptations alter their cultural and food landscape.
2: That sounds like such an incredible topic. What inspired you to want to learn more about that?
4: Yeah, so I was a pretty active kid growing up. I lived by the beach. I spent a lot of time in the mountains and I fell in love with it. I ate bugs. I ate dirt both figuratively and literally. And so I always had this extreme, profound appreciation for the natural world. And by the time I was in high school, I started doing physical oceanography research. And over time, I branched out to other topics like climate dynamics, modeling, planetary research, limnology. And so while they're all quite different, I can say with certainty that it made me realize that ultimately, I just care a lot about the environment. But the, the, the caveat was ever since like day one, everything felt kind of off. Like everything I was trying to accomplish had this lack of human aspect to it. I was working with data that gave me all the answers, but there was this disconnect. And so I felt like understanding how individual mountain communities are responding to climate and food adaptation was an essential thing that I wanted to do to be a better scientist overall.
2: That's such an interesting amalgamation of experiences that led you to
4: exploring something outside your normal realm.
2: So for that year, what communities did you decide to go to and why did you choose to go there?
4: I mainly completed my research in Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, neighboring countries, and also Nepal, India, and Lesotho. I vetted a few places out with what I knew from my own interest in high-altitude mountaineering, so I had a good sense of what I was looking for. And because, (laughs) I guess... Because of like my nerdy self, I sort of created this numerical model to help me decrease biases. So I looked into, say, a country's GDP, the altitude in which these communities lived at, their estimated population, life expectancy of the people, the mountainous terrains, areas above and below the tree line. And some things were more difficult to quantify, which is exactly why I was doing this project anyway. And it turns out that the places that I had envisioned of visiting weren't easy to find information on and had very sparse anecdotal accounts and even less recorded data. And so essentially, what I was really interested in understanding was how indigenous mountain communities were living. I think it's extremely difficult um, as an outsider to come into a completely new environment because you need to gain their trust, and that trust needs to be built. And I think from very Western perspective and because I come from the West, you know, like we oftentimes hear about climate change and we get all these acronyms thrown at us. We know it's all bad, but what does it look like? Like, what does it mean to be adaptable? What does it mean to be resilient in the face of climate change? And I went about it through a food lens because I think food is the most personable thing. Maybe it's getting warmer on average by a few Celsius, but do we actually notice that? Do people notice that? What people do notice is what ends on our dinner tables and their dinner tables.
2: Yeah, I think using food is such a good way of analyzing it. I'm also impressed with how you designed your own criteria to figure out where to go. What was that process like? You just just like dropped a <laughs> pin on a map and showed up? Like, What happened?
4: Yeah, I realized pretty quickly that that's what I didn't want to do. The places that I wanted to visit weren't on maps, and they were mainly through like, word of mouth. And so I think I had to be pretty, um, I had to think on the spot all the time. When once I got to a place, I couldn't really make many contacts beyond what I could do through like email or through uh, like online, because they don't have internet. And so I think like, there were a lot of adjustments made once I got on the ground, basically.
2: Can you describe two or three communities that you lived with, and kind of explain their circumstances, how climate change is affecting them, and you know, are they adapting, or what are some ways that they're using to try to adapt if they
4: are? I think it's important to note that each locale had its own microclimate. Some were just getting colder, so certain crops can't grow anymore, and some pockets were getting warmer. And to answer your question, I think I'm going to talk about it through butter, if that's okay, and I'm going to present to you with two different um, scenarios that I witnessed. So the first place is called Huff which is located in the Western Premieres in the Badakhshan region by the border of Afghanistan and Tajikistan. People here are nomadic pastoralists and they've been that way for generations. Um, but with the recent increase of glacial melting, their day-to-day lives were changing because the grassland permafrost is thawing at an alarming rate. But because summers are getting longer, the crops aren't growing as quickly, so there's less to feed the animals, which means less production of milk, of yogurt, of curd, and of butter, and they're being less produced. And what little they had from production. They don't keep for themselves, but instead they take it to the nearby bazaar market to sell for a good price because we're talking about high-quality hand-churned butter here. In exchange, they would take the money that they've earned from selling the butter for mass-produced butter from Iran or China. And those who are selling it tend to be older because the younger generations has left to work to provide for the household because it's quite tough to survive on just the little dairy that they were producing. And so it's very difficult. Yeah. And similarly, we're still on topic of butter because when we're thinking of mountain regions, their main diet include like lots of dairy products and meat and like barley, for example. And the second location was in the high plateaus uh, bordering the Tibetan region and Humla, which is a district in northwest nepal one of the poorest regions and butter particularly yak butter which is used in used in butter tea is very common and it's a traditional drink because it's a necessity in these harsh environments right like it's like it's calorie dense and it's what they've been drinking for a very very long time it's very salty so it's made with salt it's made with butter and it's made with tea. So if you drink it right now, it's kind of like, I don't know if you've heard of it, it's uh, bulletproof coffee. But instead of the coffee, you have the tea. And it's very salty, very fat, very dense. After you drink it, you feel very energized. And it tastes very good at a high altitude. (laughs) I don't know how it tastes at sea level. Um, (laughs) But Yaks only produce milk during the summer months, so let's say June to September. And so it becomes a high-in-demand commodity, and it becomes quite expensive to buy. And so again, there are decisions to be made. Do we sell the yak butter for money? We need the money. But even tea leaves are getting expensive, and it's now getting substituted with just water instead of tea. So it becomes like yak water. And again, you can make a lot more money working in China by crossing the border during the other harsh months. So then you come back, what, for the peak season to make ends meet when you're making way more working in labor in China. So I wanted to paint these images not so much as to sway people towards one direction or another, But these are some of the more common conditions and concerns under climate change, where we can see many things come into play because it's extremely complex. Socioeconomics, cultural traditions, education, opportunities and chance and borders, right? That's an issue as well. So I'm still wrapping my head around all of that.
2: So what are some other ways that you found people are adapting? And how are these adaptations affecting their culture or traditions?
4: You know, mountain communities and these vulnerable communities have been adapting for a very very long time. Once our world became more developed, we built borders. So people who were hunter-gatherers or who were like people who were nomadic, they had to stop that lifestyle. And so so they had to adapt and they had to be strong and they had to be resilient with all of these changes. I can only give you a very like broad answer because these are some of like the bigger issues that I think policymakers and government officials are trying to voice and are trying to resolve. But in general, I think things are changing. The younger generations don't want to follow in the footsteps of their parents or their go- like their grandparents anymore. They want to make choices. They want to go to school. They want to be able to put food on the table. They don't want to spend their time living in poverty or be marginalized. And so I don't know if I answer your question, but these are some of the things that like, I've noticed um, across the board, not just in these two communities, but in general, like in, in Lesotho, in India, in Sikkim region.
2: It's a very complex, convoluted, intertwined topic. And you can't isolate environmental problems from social issues.
4: And I think that's, I think that's like one of the most like difficult lessons for me to learn. I think I came in and I had like a very, very specific topic and I wanted to like accomplish something in, in that space. But then a lot of issues came about, right? Like I needed to to think about like the local government and the local government is completely different than the national government. And then once you're in an autonomous region, that's like a whole different story. And then we need to think about tradition and like cultural differences and spiritual differences and how do we give them a voice without changing their voice so you also need to think about like mitigation when you're thinking about adaptation and then you need to think about it from so many different levels that it's it's just so 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 complex and fortunately and unfortunately like I was able to witness and be a part of that.
2: So what was your main takeaway or the main lesson that you learned from this Watson year experience?
4: So for me, I hope to continue to tackle the issues of climate change in vulnerable regions and incorporate those traditional knowledge and lived experiences into my own research and my own scientific research. Because to me, I think traditional knowledge is the original like scientific knowledge, right? We base a lot of what we understand from that. And ultimately, I think climate change and food security are two major challenges of of the 21st century. And unfortunately, indigenous mountain communities are some of the most affected, if not already affected. I mean, to put it into perspective, our world's mountains are home to over 800 million people. And the higher you go in terms of altitude, the more fragile and the more susceptible they are to climate change. And so... There are so many things that we need to address as a global initiative, but I think we're, compared to maybe 10 years ago, we now have more partnerships and NGOs and coalitions that are trying to have these conversations about advancing sustainable mountain development and coming up with ways to incorporate mountain resilient strategies um, in these communities. And so ultimately what I guess like the main takeaway is it's very important for us to recognize that indigenous people are some of the strongest people like mentally. I mean, they have to be, they have to be. They live above three, 4,000 meters and they're the most resilient and adaptable people I've ever met. And I have no problem thinking that they'll survive and they'll they'll do what they can to, to survive. But then it also becomes a, a question about how we can change their circumstances socially.
2: Thank you so much for joining us, Tina. This has been a pleasure hearing your stories and learning about your experience.
4: Thank you. Thank you for listening to me.
0: There's certainly no doubt that people were going to have to change and they're going to have to adapt, everybody, especially in some of those more vulnerable communities. But like you said, to what degree? How much? On that lovely note... Emily Stanford, thanks so much for producing this episode for the Eyes on Conservation podcast, the soon-to-be renamed Eyes on Conservation. Thanks
2: so much, Greg. Episodes like the one you've just listened to are supported by our patrons, and our patrons receive exclusive content like the extended versions of all of our podcast episodes we produce. And for as little as a dollar, we are able to produce one to two creations a month. And these donations make a real difference in the work that we're able to produce so consider joining today at www.patreon.com slash Collective. Thanks so much for listening.